Welcome to We Got Balls, real, raw, masculine sex talk with Chris Inman and Scott Cohn. Chris and Scott both work with men who want to leave their unwanted sexual struggles in the past. They are willing to do whatever it takes to help men get curious about what drives their compulsive sexual behavior. With that said, here we go. Hey guys, glad to be back on another episode of We Got Balls. We're continuing the discussion today on sexual abuse. And last time we kind of talked about what is it and got some particularities about data and who it affects and a little bit about the types of sexual abuse. But today what we really want to do is dig in deeply into why sexual abuse is so significant in its effects on us as men. I mean, it affects men and women uh, obviously across the board, everyone that's sexually abused has has a downstream effect. But I think it's important to give a voice to us as men and what are the things that we can really put our finger on, get some clarity around as to these pieces of, of sexual abuse uh, and how it really stays with us for all of our lives. I mean, the, the harmful experiences that we experienced as children and as teenagers, they don't go away. We can't put them in the past and just ignore them. They will always be with us on some level. The question is, are we going to do the work to speak truthfully about its impacts on us and find healing and seek repair? So, Scott, great to be with you. Um, when you think about that, who are the people that typically are the, the, the perpetrators of sexual abuse? And, and how does that play into that story of its effects on us? Yeah, so when you dive into the research on this, it's really kind of counterintuitive to what you would normally think. So I think the the kind of the Hollywood television movie of the week type of scenarios painted this idea that there's a bunch of perpetrators, anonymous perpetrators running around abusing children and mm -hmm. teenagers. And sadly, the data shows that that is a very small percentage of the abusers that are out there. So about 5% of abusers are completely unknown to the victims. That means, though, that the majority of abuse is perpetrated by either a family member, which is around 26%, or the remaining 60-some percent of abusers are somebody that's well-known to the victim. So, so almost I just want to anchor that in. 95% of abusers are people that children and teenagers already know. That's right. Wow. And so if it's a family member um, or even if it's just a friend of the family, a coach, a pastor, a youth group leader, I mean, we've all heard it all. Right. So typically there is some kind of power and I'll break the categories down even further. So there's usually a power dynamic. The, the abusers of other men are typically going to be older in some sense. Um, or they're going to be more sexually experienced. So you can be abused by somebody that's your same age, but if they're introducing you to sexual behavior at seven that a seven-year-old normally wouldn't know, so you're, you go over to your friend's house and he goes, hey, let's give each other blowjobs. There's a great example of a case where sexual abuse is perpetrated in kind of a secondhand smoke or secondhand sexual abuse way. You know that a seven-year-old boy doesn't know what a blowjob is unless somebody older than him shows him what that is. And now he's bringing that to you. So a lot of men never consider that you have to think about your story in terms of what was the language that my abuser used. And we're going to use some, some graphic terms in this, but I'll just give you 
an example from my own life. When I was five, I went down to my best friend's house at the time. He was seven years old and he invited me to butt fuck, which is a really graphic term for anal sex. And I said, what's that? And he goes, oh, we pull our pants down and lay on top of each other. So he didn't really know what the term meant, but he knew the term. And it wasn't until I started working on my sexual story that I came to the realization of where does a seven-year-old know the kind of the slang term for anal sex? Somebody had to show him. And somebody who knew what they were doing had to show him. And so he's just kind of approximating what he's learned in his abuse from some older boy relative something and bringing that to me. But um, so you can be abused by somebody that's the same age, but if they're more sexually sophisticated, it's going to be just as damaging. And again, because we feel a sense of complicity in our abuse, we tell ourselves, well, I liked it. I got aroused. It felt good. So the abusers are by and large going to be somebody um, that's older. Um, typically, it's an older man, as we've talked about, 18 to 1 men abuse other boys or teenage boys uh, compared to the number of women that abuse. So it's almost going to always be an older guy, somebody in authority. It could be an older cousin, an uncle, a pastor, youth pastor, uh, you know, Bible study leader, coach camp counselor. I mean, you name it, we've all heard it. And, um, and then if it's a family member that adds another complication, but in general, notice that in all of these cases, there is a betrayal of trust because I know these people, I may even really like them and love them. And so my trust is being violated in some way. And that's one of three categories that always have to be considered in abuse is trust is always betrayed. Um, the second category would be there is this sense of powerlessness, which we get when we talk about, you know, being frozen, that sense of being overwhelmed in the experience that my body cannot hold all the intensity of the emotions and the sensations as a five-year-old what it's experiencing, because I don't have any language to put to what is sexuality, what is sexual touch. And there's this fusion of all of these different neurochemicals of dopamine and adrenaline and cortisol and all of the confusing emotions that go with arousal and anger or feeling used or the betrayal of trust and this the confusion. And it's just a, a morass that becomes overwhelming for somebody that has no context for understanding what's going on to deal with. And yeah, so the and, sense of And Scott, I, I would just, I would put a, put an exclamation mark on that is that part of the, the, the great harm of sexual abuse is this introduction of experiences that are way too premature. Like you're not, you're, you're in your body, in your experience, you are not ready for this. Right. There is right. no way to prepare. There's nothing that you should have done to get ready this is something that has happened to you way out of the timeline of your organic development. And the experience itself is what is so, uh, it's that, that um, traumatic arousal cocktail. It's, it's, it's exciting. 
and harmful and new and 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 it's a betrayal like you said that betrayal of trust it's all that experience in a human being that they have absolutely no grid to explain or understand thus the overwhelm thus the shutdown that's right and this problem is made even worse by the family system so i'll go back and repeat what we said in the last episode is there is some dynamic at play in our family that always sets us up for the abuse being the experience that it is because we're neglected in some sense or nobody's paying attention to us or nobody's touching us or hugging us or giving us that kind of attention, affection, and approval, the three A's, like I like to call it. And our abuser reads that lack of care on our faces and in our emotions. And so they're bringing that to us, although it's wrapped up in this package of sexual experience. Why that becomes overwhelming is it creates these incredible sensations in my body and my nervous system. And where does all that go, right? It goes to the only place in my body that can expand to take it, my penis. I get an erection. And so arousal is always a part of this cocktail of confusing emotions and sensations. And yet, as a man, when I get an erection, so much of the time I'm telling myself, well, it feels good. I was sexually aroused. I wanted it. And that leads to the third category, which is this category of both shame and ambivalence. I feel shame that I'm getting an erection with another male. What does that say about my sexual orientation? Does that mean I'm gay? Um, and I have this ambivalence. I don't like it, but I do like it. I don't really feel comfortable with how I'm being touched, but it feels really good because I'm not being touched at all in my home. And so this sets up this incredible war within us that goes on and on until we're willing to address it, that in so many ways, we didn't have a chance. Mm. We didn't have yes. a chance. Well, and, and I want to go back to the family system dynamic that you mentioned. You know, you mentioned that the abuser sees something in us that they can take advantage of, and there is no scenario that after an abuse, that that same shame and shutdown and ambivalence is not on the face of that child. And yet they go back to their home and they begin to withdraw. And who pursues them? Who asks them, what happened? Are you okay? Tell me, tell me what's going on, buddy. Because of the rigid, disengaged, uh, and even harmful situations that many of us found in our homes, that abuse goes unaddressed. So that's, that's an incredibly important point is a trauma is not just what happens to us. It's what happens in us and how we're left alone in it. Yes. So in all trauma, there is this sense of being alone. There's a sense of powerlessness that I could not stop what was happening to me. But then I'm left alone with the overwhelming emotions and sensations that I have for that. And here's an operative question for anybody to ask themselves is, after you had this very uncomfortable or weird or awkward sexual experience or touching experience with, with an older friend or your scout leader or whatever, who did you tell? And the answer so often is nobody. 
And the reason why you told nobody is because, A, you either knew that in your rigid family, you would be come down on with such heat and such pain that it wouldn't be worth sharing that with anybody. There was, there was nobody that would take that un, overwhelming emotional experience that you had and engage it with kindness and care and help you normalize what was happening to you. Or you just knew that nobody cared. Mm. Nobody's mm. ever home for you. So what does it matter if the boy down the streets wants to touch my penis? At least, and at least somebody wants to touch me. At least somebody wants to touch me. Yeah. And you know, so much of so much of our sexual abuse grows in a barren soil in our families where there's no sunshine, there's no water, there's no fertilization of that little plant that's me. And yet somebody down the street is willing to give me a drink of cool water, which satisfies my thirst. It may be laced with some cyanide, but it's better than dying of thirst. And so you know, one of the things that we have to do to heal from this in the long run is we have to be able to bless not the abuse itself, but how my body experienced arousal and care and comfort in the midst of the abuse. What happened to my body was good. My sense of connection, my sense of being comforted, my sense of delight, all of those things that God created me for. My abuser was offering me, and of course they're going to turn me on. Of course I'm going to get aroused. Of course, that's a taste of heaven. And in a way, I know this sounds perverted, but in a way, our abusers were better parents and even better pictures of God at, at that point in our lives. Well, I would, I, would, I would color that a little bit. They felt like better yeah. parents. They felt like better pictures of God because they were not better parents or better pictures of God. They were, they were consuming and they were abusive. But in the moment, I needed the touch to be seen, to be, to feel loved. And that ironically sets up, as you're talking about with shame and ambivalence, it sets up a lifetime of seeing touch, of seeing attunement, of seeing love and sexuality from that very twisted point of view that I'm a, I'm a utilitarian with my sexuality now. I, I I can't get love and connection the way that that most people do, so I've got to find it other places. And some of the stuff that you mentioned, I think, is really important to pay attention to and to recognize, um, namely the 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 sexual downstream of sexual abuse. And I'm going to throw out some categories, and you may want to add to this, but oftentimes with people that have been sexually abused, I see a, a hypersexuality. I'm going to prove that this was not true about me. So if it was abuse by another man, I'm going to act out with as many women as I can to, to say I'm not gay, to prove that that's not it. And I develop a dependence on that sexual behavior to have that experience of connection. I only, and I'm going to say this, guys, and you've got to come to terms with this. We don't need sex. But you may have had experiences in your life that taught you that the only way you could feel loved is if you experienced sexual touch and sexual orgasm. 
And that hypersexuality can come from a number of harms, but it's especially acute with sexual abuse. Another piece is this idea of sexual orientation is, okay, so I really liked being touched by another guy. Maybe I liked guys. Maybe, maybe I'm because this guy was so much more masculine than me. Maybe I, I'm more of a feminine type. Maybe I need to be on the receiving end of the sexual, which makes me interested in what does it mean to um, be gender neutral or even transgender? And we can go down that road. And another piece that I've also heard and seen, it's not as, as frequent of people who especially are abused by women, is asexuality, just sexual shutdown. And they're probably not listening to this podcast. Let's just be honest. They're, they're not listening to We Got Balls because they don't want to hear about any of this. But if you run across a man who is afraid of sex and, and struggles to connect intimately, oftentimes it's because of sexual abuse in his childhood that he's just literally taken and wrapped all of his sexual energy in that box and buried it, frozen it in time and just wants to move on in different categories. So I know that's a, a ton to open up, but how does that, how do those effects really flavor our lives downstream as men? Yeah, we, you talked about those categories. I think those are a great um, starting point for looking at and being curious about what is my current sexual struggle? And then trying to make that connect the dots connection between what I'm currently struggling with and how this formed in my life through these kinds of sexual experiences. So um, in my case, for example, I'm going into that five-year-old sexual abuse experience with my older friend with a sense of a lot of rejection um, and harm from my mom and other kind of female figures in my life. I had a second grade teacher that was pretty harmful to me and humiliated me in public a lot. And so there was this sense of ultimate powerlessness, which is humiliation, like you're being torn up in front of other people. And at the same time, I wasn't this sporty, you know, uh, team sports kind of kid that my dad was into. My dad was really into team sports. And so I didn't feel like I was good enough for my dad and uh, didn't feel like my mom was was seen kind of a, and women were seen as kind of an object of harm. And so when my older friend offers me this experience, even if it's sexual and I don't know what it is, there's this fusion of friendship and sexual touch that occurs at five. And it's arousing and it feels good. And the confusion of that is, is I feel like something is wrong here but I like it. And so I like something that's wrong. And my conclusion is there's something wrong with me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. And, and that is so often kind of the story that we begin to tell ourselves about these experiences. Again, it's not the experience itself, but it's what happens within me. So you could have two children that are both sexually abused. One goes home and talks to his father or mother and says, hey, when I was down at Jimmy's house, he asked me to show me uh, my penis and he showed me his and we touched each other. And, and then you engage your child on that. Oh, 
okay, tell me, tell me more about that. Was that scary? Was it fun? Did your penis get hard? Let's talk about that. And in a, in a safe kind of attuned setting, you can engage that story with your parent and all that conflicting emotion and arousal and confusion gets discharged and it's normalized. And so that experience never becomes a harmful experience because you had the attunement of a parent who was caring and loving and saw you and was able to read your emotion on your face and they engaged you. And so it just becomes a non-experience. But the other child doesn't have that kind of relational dynamic in the family. He knows he's going to get yelled at or told he's going to hell. That's homosexual. You'll burn in hell for that. Or they know that their parents just don't care that much because they're left alone all the time. And so they don't even bother to bring it up. And they have to hold all of that tension of that ambivalence. I liked it, but I didn't like it. And the confusion and the all of that is held by the child. And what's the child's only conclusion at that point? I like something that's wrong. Something must be bad with me. Yeah. Yeah. Right? That's shame. hundred percent. And that starts a lifelong battle with this. So once you get into puberty, then so often what I experience and what I see in the guys that I coach is an attempt to work out and reverse all of those conflicting sensations and emotions that I feel in a repetition of that sexual behavior that takes me from feeling like I'm a victim to being victorious in it. It takes me from being trampled on to being a triumphant individual in that. So I'm looking to go back and repeat aspects of the experience because I found them nurturing and caring and connecting. But I'm also doing it in a way that I know is going to get me defeated, that is just going to kind of repeat some of the past. And that's what we call repetition compulsion. And that becomes a really... um prevalent feature in the lives of those who have been sexually abused. Most of the time, we're not even aware that we're doing that. And it takes, you know, kind of the kind, caring attunement of others to tell our stories to who can go, hey, have you ever considered that, you know, when you go and look for this kind of sexual experience online, or, you know, the porn you're watching, or the way you're kind of pursuing others, that you're actually repeating what happened to you when you were five, when you were seven, when you were 12. And the light bulb goes on. And um, I can even, I'll, I'll give you an example of this. Um, one of the guys that I coached was raised in a very strict uh, conservative Christian home, tightly controlled. Um, his mother really dominated his life with um money and when he got married you know he'd never had sex before but he'd been exposed to porn and after they got married and started having kids there was a lot of pressure that started mounting up and he worked for his mom and dad's company and all of the pressures of life started to weigh in on him and he was just looking for a way to escape it and he started going to strip clubs and having strippers, you know, do lap dances and stuff with him. And um, when we started engaging his story, the question was, in what way are you repeating your relationship with your mom here in an attempt to reverse it? And the really 
just kind of astonishing thing was his favorite place to go in terms of strip club was called the church. And he would literally sit in the church with money in his hand and reverse the harm that he experienced with his mother. And we saw that it's like, I can't believe I'm, I'm reenacting my relationship with my mom where she controlled me with money and everything was about God and the church. And I'm, I'm literally going to a place called the church to try to find relief from that through sexual pleasure. And there's so many stories that are like that over and over again, where, you know, you can tell stories about this. I can too, about where guys were literally reenacting how they had been harmed in their adult sexual behavior but in a way that could transform their suffering into triumph. Yeah. So uh, again, go back a few episodes, uh, Pornhub year in review episode two, when we talked about psychological cues, what, what we're really getting to is when, when there are dynamics that are going on in our lives, um, a lot of them are rooted in these stories of abuse, particularly sexual abuse. And Scott's story that he just told about that man who was reversing his harm, that's everyone's story. We're either repeating, reversing, or re-identifying, creating a new meaning to it. And so when we when we use those those frames and go back and understand it, I don't know if you felt it, but as, I, as Scott was sharing that, Scott, I appreciate it. I felt compassion for that man. But my heart was drawn to him because I didn't look at his behavior and condemn it. I saw, just like the parents of that of that little boy you were describing earlier, saw their heart and their desire and blessed it, not saying, hey, we want you to keep doing these behaviors. I don't bless going to a strip club, but I bless the man's desire to be seen and 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 invite and encourage, as I do in my own story, how can I love that little boy? How can I help that man who is still in that place of dysfunction and brokenness and shame heal and experience something different today as an adult that doesn't keep him trapped, doesn't keep him compulsively going back to behaviors and situations that reinforce the shame and that amplify the ambivalence? and really can allow any of us to heal. So, Scott, I know we could go down the rabbit trail of talking about a number of different aspects of sexual abuse and its impacts on us, but if you had to leave the listeners with with one idea, what would you leave them with to be able to really anchor in the importance of doing the work around your sexual story, especially when it comes to your abuse? I think the biggest thing I can say is what what we say to a lot of guys in our coaching practice is that the opposite of addiction or sexually compulsive behavior is not sobriety, it's community. And if you really want to engage your stories of sexual harm and sexual abuse, you need to be in a community with other men who understand what that's like to experience and who understand how to take your story and be with you in it. Because ultimately, where the damage was done in our lives is not the sexual experiences we had, but our complete aloneness in them after the fact. And it's that 
complete being alone that creates this cocoon of isolation and secrecy and shame that allows this to flourish in our lives. And to reverse all of that, you have to do the opposite of isolation. You have to be in community. You have to stop telling, stop keeping secrets and start being radically vulnerable. And most of us cannot see our own stories. We need others who are attuned to us and care for us who can point out when you got an erection when he was doing that to you, what did you start to tell yourself? How did you feel in that moment? Can you see the shame? Can you see how in the story at that point you begin to turn against yourself and make a vow that you will never again trust another person with your heart? And it requires that kind of attuned care to engage our stories with kindness and curiosity and a tenderness from other people who can see things that we can't see. And ultimately then in that connected community where you can be completely vulnerable and radically true and honest about what's happened to you, you receive that care continually. It allows you to change. It allows you to take the meaning that you've given to those stories and rewrite them and find different meaning than the meaning you've assigned to it. So it's hard work. This is some of the hardest and bravest thing, things that I've seen men ever do. Yeah. And yet it's so beautiful and so good. Yeah. And Scott, when we, when we move away from the sobriety model and towards the community model, what we're really doing, as you just described, is we're bringing all the pieces of our lives and bringing them in one place and helping them feel safe, seen, safe, soothed, and secure. We're, we're re-parenting, we're re-constituting our emotional, relational, mental worlds, embodied worlds, so that we can begin to live life as it was intended for us. And so Amen. I think that invitation has to be done with others, obviously, has to be done speaking truly, has to be reflected back, but really it's an invitation to hope. And that's what I want to leave us with, is that if you've been sexually abused or know someone that, that's been sexually abused, invite them to hope by doing the work, as Scott mentioned, the difficult work necessary to begin to heal from that experience that has shaped you your whole life. And so we want to continue um, to work through this next time. Scott, um, you're going to share with us your story of sexual abuse, right? That's right. So that's how we're going to do the work. Scott and I are going to work together and we'll model that for you and get, let you give a picture inside a little bit of the process of doing the healing and doing the reconnecting of those pieces so that you can see it is possible for you to heal. And we want to invite you to that. So keep engaging. Uh, you can connect with us um, and find out more about how you can heal as well. And we look forward to talking to you all soon. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. Don't forget to subscribe for more episodes. You can connect with Chris at PornFreeMasculinity.com and with Scott at SuccessfulMen.com.